Welcome to the official FASTA podcast. Looking to optimize your marketing funnel during this difficult time? ROI calculators, assessments, and recommendation tools help improve your conversion rates. Found out how you can build these tools at outgrow.co forward slash that. That's outgrow.co forward slash S-A-A-S. In today's Aster Insider, we continue our conversation on the 10 mistakes the CEO of Zoom Info made on his journey to IPO with Henry Shuck, CEO at Zoom Info, and Jason Lumpkin, CEO at Zaster. Now this one, this one is probably a little more later stage focused. I would imagine mistake. Um, I think it matters. I, I said investors here. I think this is if you have a board. It, this yeah. is this this one applies to you. But we all have board. I mean, we all get to a point where we're bored. Yeah. So what does yeah. this mean that your voice was important? Why, how are you not being heard, or what? What were you? How are you not being distinctive? Here? It, it wasn't. It was. It was more like I wasn't trying to be heard. Um, you know, you start this business. Uh, it starts growing, you put a board together. And when you get that board together, like I'm a public school product. I went to public high school. I went to public uh, undergrad and grad school. And all of a sudden I have a board and it's filled with these guys from Harvard and Penn. Oh, I see. And it's intimidating in a way. It's, it's an, and they just stroked you a big check. Yeah. And so you have this feeling like that when that happens, that you should be deferring to these folks. Like they're the smart Smartest people in the world. You do, room. right? You, you fall into this mode almost like it's parental relationship, don't you? Yes. I yeah. hate it. I hate oh. it. I will never be that person. But you you default into the and, and, the, and they act that way toward you. They treat you a little bit like their older son, don't they? Yeah, a little bit like your, their, their older son. And they're respectful of it. But I think you let yourself fall into that older son role too. Dude. Because yeah. these guys just gave you a bunch of money. Now there's a board. They invested in all of these other businesses. You trust them. And they went to the best schools in the world. And now they're sitting in your conference room at your like little company and telling you like, hey, what about this? What about that? And so I remember after my first board meeting, I, I grabbed one of my uh, one of the guys on my board. And luckily, he was uh, an investor and an operator. And so he had started a business and grown it. He sold it to S&P. Um, and, and I said, I said, look, uh, Randy, his name is Randy. When I go, look, Randy, like you, you guys just tell me what to do. And I'll, I'll, I'll just go do that. Like, you just tell me what to do. I'll go do what you want me to do. Yeah. And he was like, Whoa, that is not how this should work. Henry. Like, yeah, this should not work like that. We're not in the day to day, the way that you are. We don't understand the inner workings of the company. We're going to give advice, but it's your advice. It's your job to like, listen to that. And then decide what you're going to decide internally at the business. But don't just like, it can't work where we just tell you what to do and you go do it. Like, don't view your board relationship like that. Um, I got you now. Yeah. Yeah, this is, um, this is a super important mistake. Um, and uh, we've all been through it. I, I certainly, am, I'm not going to live my life this way now. But uh, as you know, especially the first time as a founder, and even the second time, this deferential relationship to your investors, it is... Um, 
it can be subtly toxic if you let it go on for too long. It, totally. it can be. They don't know. And they will even many of them will even encourage it. They're used to it. They're used to this slightly imperial relationship. And today it's almost worse. I was working with a company that, you know, because people will write big checks today into early stage companies, right? Where someone came in very early and gave an early startup $50 million too early and just started telling them how to raise the company. Immediately told them to go buy competitors, at, which were they're not ready for, right? Yeah. Immediately told them to hire 50 reps in a different city, in a different city. And they did. the CEO was deferential because that was 10 times what he'd ever raised before and did all of it. And what happened to all those mistakes? Guess what happened to all those mistakes? They were terrible, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, right. 50 reps in a new city that you've never met in, yeah, in yeah. hired in 60 days when you're in the, the low millions ARR, what's that going to do to your company, right? And starting yeah. M&A when you don't even have time to hire the VP, when you don't even have a VP team, right? And that's destructive. Yeah. You, you lose years, right? So balancing yeah. this is hard, but... If your founders don't be too de- be respectful, but not differential, there's some sort of ism there, isn't there? Voice. They want to hear that voice. Actually, yeah. if they're good investors, but if you don't take the opportunity to share that voice, you just take what they say and go run doing it. Like in that situation, Jason, the founder has to be able to to go like, whoa, whoa, whoa wait a second, like I don't have a VP. I've never been to that city. It's far away. Like, how am I going to do this? It's going to break all of this stuff. And so often when I think about the business today and I get like, uh, you know, advice from the board, I'll say like, I totally get that. I will tell you right now, if I go try to do that now, I just, it's not going to work. Like for all yep. of these reasons, it's going to break. I hear you. And I think we can get there over the next six months or over the next year. And I'll work on getting us there. It's just not for today. Yeah, that's the answer, right? To anyone listening to this that's struggling with that, right? With sort of an imperial group of investors, that's what you say, right? Say, you, you know, you, you can you can yell or argue, but that doesn't accomplish anything. If the point is valid, but not today, you've right. people want to hear that. We, they want to hear that's a good idea, but not now. Like, we're not ready. Like, give yep. me time, right? The number of times I've had that conversation and then they, you know, the board will go, got it. I totally appreciate that. You should go fix that so that you have the opportunity to make these types of investments along the way, but totally get that it's not for today. Yeah. So number six, thinking you're getting away with underinvesting in management, upskilling, and HR. We might have touched on this one too on the hiring of the people, but what was this real mistake? Where did you? We all underinvest, but what was that? What was? What are the painful memories here from underinvestment? Well, I had this. I, I had this. I had this really um, valuable experience in that when we acquired ZoomInfo, it was a company that was in our space doing something similar, um, but doing it in a completely different motion. And so it's as though like all of the things you thought you might do along the way, you got like an open book case study to your competitor doing. And in this, in this way, like we, we underinvested in middle management along the way, especially in our go-to-market motion. And instead of investing in managers, people to like manage a group of people and get yeah. them motivated and keep them uh, focused on metrics, we invested in a bunch of automation. And so instead of like investing in a manager to manage sales folks, we built a lot of automation. So our sales team would never miss a follow-up, would always, you would always uh, see what's going on in their accounts, would be alerted if their account like logged into a trial and took a bunch of actions. We basically automated managerial functions and that made for a, for a, you know, a, a high margin business. But it, then we acquired ZoomInfo and what you saw was a very opposite approach 
instead of investing a bunch in automation, they invested a bunch in managers in that go-to-market motion. And you saw that when you invested in great managers, the outcome was in a lot of places much greater than just investing in automation all along the way. Um, and they trusted people, they hired good people, they had good managers, they created good structure. And so when we went in there, we're like, okay, well, it, that works. Like you can invest in managerial talent along the way and it scaled the company. And you know, at the time we acquired ZoomInfo, ZoomInfo was growing faster than us. Um, and we're like, well, this is why. They've, took a, they've taken a different approach, invested in management along the way, invested in HR and strategic HR and upskilling their employees. And we just invested in automation. But you know, combining those two things is really incredible. But uh, I think the learning for me here is if you hire great managers, you can outperform any investment in automation. I think that's a, that's a profound takeaway, especially today because so many founders want to maximize automation at every level, right? Not, not yeah. just an engineering product, but in every level. How can I do this through tools and systems? And how can I run this in Notion and do this in Slack and automate it? Yeah. Um, but I don't think it's a replacement. I think it's an addition. You have to do both. That's uh -huh. where the magic is. When you do the tools and the people, then, then you pull ahead, right? 100%. Yep. But it's not a crutch. It's a good... That, that's a good challenge. All right, yeah, this whole, the whole Discover Org Zoom Info thing, rename the company. Um, yep. A lot of stuff going on there. Um, yeah, not me, saying, maybe yeah. I can talk about why we changed the name because I think it's an interesting case study for- It's a big uh, deal to change your name. It's a big deal to change your name. It's a big um, deal. It's a big deal. Now, it was made slightly easier by the fact that Discover Org is just not a great name. <laughs> and throughout the years, it got messed up like in every different way possible. But we made the acquisition. I remember being um, being in a meeting with our senior executives, and it was like, okay, so should we change the name? And no one wants to tell me <laughs> that we should change the name, right? No one's like ready to go like, yeah, that, yeah, Henry, that name that you picked while you're in law school, like it sucks. Yeah, it doesn't work. It's got two different things going on in it. The uppercase O, it's all very confusing. <laughs> yeah, right. So, but what I told myself in this process was, look, if it's better for the business, I'm going to change the name. So just yep. let's convince me that it's better for the business or that, you know, contrarily, uh, tell me that keeping the Discover Org name is worse for the business because I'm not going to be able to live with that decision. Like I'll never be able to live with a good way to put it. Yeah. That I put some weird personal feeling of mine associated to the name uh, ahead of the success of the company. And so we went out and we did a study and everything came back that it was really clear. We should change the name to zoom info. It had much larger brand awareness in the market. It was a better name. So, so we switched, we switched the name um, about four months after we made the acquisition, we announced to the team we we're changing the name. And I was pretty sure actually, we were going to keep the Discover Org name when we started that process because Discover Org at the time was the more premium brand. Um, people yeah. were spending more money annually on a Discover Org contract than they were on a Zoom Info contract, but the awareness just wasn't even close. Um, and so we made that decision. And then uh, as part of the sort of putting the two companies together, the big learning for me is, uh, or the big learning for me was culture the culture we had built was really important and valuable. And I think we went into the acquisition going like, well, that company's growing faster. It's doing all these great things. Let's not like upset the apple cart much here. And oh, so that's an interesting topic, right? Yeah. 
Yeah. And so we just sort of sat back and let the, the two organizations kind of have their own culture. And then after six months or nine months, we're like, nope, this, let's unify this thing. The culture that we built at Discover Org is a great culture and we shouldn't like be embarrassed about it. Like, you know, if you come to our offices, there's no ping pong table. There's not a game room. It's just not something we believe in. We believe like you're doing important work and we want you to come in and be focused on that work. Um, And Zoom Info was like ping pong tables and uh, game rooms and shuffle boards. And the, the minute I didn't do anything about that, everybody back at Discover Org was like, well, what the heck? Like years of you telling us we're not that company and all of a sudden you're okay with it over there? Yeah. And so it had like a- Those guys have Wine Wednesday. <laughs> right, right. So, I, you know, I did, it, it, it hurts you both ways if you don't have a very clear culture uh, across your company. And then once you have it, you should feel really good about it and convicted about that being part of your success. But let's just dig in there for one sec. This culture, it's a complicated topic. What does it even mean? It has so many. So when you decided you needed one culture, right? Yeah. Um, but what did you do? Did you take out the ping pong tables and the colors? Or what is that? What is, just give us one or two steps that you did. Yeah. Because easier said than done to blend two sure. cultures, right? Couple, easier said than done. Totally. couple things. One, I did get rid of the ping pong tables and uh, <laughs> shuffleboard things, but I donated them to a children's char- charity or a children's group in the community. Okay. Kind of hard to get mad at me when I like donate arcade game to a children's, uh, like a boys and girls club outside of Boston. Um, yeah. And then, and then we, we took people from the discover org offices in, in, uh, in Bethesda and Vancouver. And then we stuck them inside of those offices. Well, that's important, right? And once okay. you did that, it just changed the, in, like, nearly instantly. You saw an uptick in, uh, in ASP and ACV across the go-to-market teams. It molded. Oh, I see, because they had the experience, right? So they brought that DNA in of the higher ACV. They brought that DNA in, and pe- people saw them succeeding and went, oh, oh, I get it. That's the way we should do these things. Or that They are really successful when they do it that way. Yeah. And did, was there a little bit of sadness when the when the when the when when Pac Man went out the door? Um, did did people watch? How did you manage that little? Um, I think piece? we did it on a weekend, so on I don't know. Maybe a little bit of sadness, but I think everybody was okay. All right, yeah, it, it's a it's a change, right? It's a we we laugh, but it's a big the people these these small things people people they, people they pay matter. attention to them, right? Yeah. All right, this one, this one almost looks like something I would see on the wall at Zoom Info. So I <laughs> want to know what the story is. The power of positive thinking, everybody. Um, th- I'm ending the all-hands meeting with this slide, folks. Yep. Um, great job in Q2, but this, this, this means more than it looks, right? What is yeah. this mistake? I think this mistake is interesting because along the way, um, if I had a disagreement, especially when you're not in control, if yeah. I had a disagreement like with the board or – um, really like at the board level, or if there was something that I wanted to do that the board wasn't supportive of, yes. you could get into these like situations where you're like, you know what, you know what, I'm just going to, what if I just leave, everybody will be screwed if I leave. I'll put and the keys just, on the table. I'm going to leave the keys on the table to the, yeah. you, and there's just no, guys. nothing good that comes out of like getting to like letting your mind go to a place where you're like, ah, you know, I'm just going to leave if they don't trust me. And oh, I get it. Yeah. And instead of doing that, I think, and I had good, I, you know, my, I had a good uh, senior VP of revenue 
And he would tell me like, well, that's not good for anybody. So let's just like, kind of like unpack here what you're like, why you're upset about this or why you're not getting what you want from it. And, uh, and then, and you don't have to be a martyr about just like one little decision that you guys aren't in total alignment. Um, and so the positive thinking part about this is, is I think really important too. And I, I'm kind of coupling two things in here. Not everybody is like well-trained to tell themselves a positive narrative about what's happening in front of them. Yeah. And it's really easy to have some negative thing happen and then spin around the drain around that negative thing over and over and over and over again. And there are two narratives you can tell yourself about any situation. And so I work really hard to constantly tell myself a positive narrative about the situations that, um, that I'm in. And, uh, and that really like helps you get through, I think, a lot and not get focused on the most. But here's a good example. Um, we're, we're have, we have a six-month lockup right after their shares go public. And I'm yep. friends with all of the different employees at Zoom Info. And some of my friends will come over and they'll like share what their plans are with their shares. Like some don't want to sell anything forever. Some want to share, sell some of their shares and then sort of have a balanced approach after. And, and my wife was like, one night she goes, she's like, well, why is that guy doing that? And I was like, listen, this is not a thing for me. Everybody can choose how they, how they sell their own shares. It has no, like, it has no, um, there's no story around how they feel about me or how they feel about the business. Everybody's got a unique situation and how they think about um, how they think about their shares in the company. And I'm not going to like impart their decisions on like how they feel about the company or how they feel about me as a leader. I just yeah. can't do that. Um, and that's a drain you could spin right down on. Um, and right I think so like yeah. giving yourself a good narrative along the way is incredibly important. Did you have, because we all go through this feeling until a certain point of time, especially until you have a good management team of once in a while thinking I'm going to put the leave the keys on the table. You don't really do it, but it goes through your mind because you're, you're the VP of sales and marketing and product yep. and people let you down or the board yells at you and you don't really do it. But you know what? I could just, you guys, your investment would be gone. <laughs> this is the um, martyr. This is the martyr part of that. whole. This thing. is the martyr. I'm, I'm still, I still struggle that myself. Um, what does this, did you have any, and so you feel that way. And sometimes you feel this way when someone great leaves. Yeah. You know, you feel so bad. Like, you know, I, it was so great doing this with you, you know, yep. Jane or Lori and like, uh, do you, how do you, any learnings? It's I maybe mean, it's not quite this mistake, but how do you handle when the great ones have to move on? Do you struggle with this? Have you gotten Zen about it at this scale? Um, no, I haven't gotten Zen about <laughs> it at this scale. Um, so when the great ones leave, it's very like, uh, you know, I spend a lot of time trying to convince them not to first. Yes. Um, and if that doesn't work, then, you know, it's just a business. And I'm thinking about like, I remember I had a senior person leave about a year ago. And when he left, it, it, and actually I kept him here for like two years longer than he had wanted to. And he was a single guy and wanted to go find his wife and travel the world. Um, and I spent time making sure the business was ready for his departure, which was the most important thing. Cause I think when the great ones leave, one of your biggest issues is like, Oh my God, what am I going to do? Like they're so yep. important. And so once you take that piece away, it's a lot easier to like focus on everything else. So things are not in a panic. 
So if someone's going to leave, I think my first conversation with them is like, got it. Let's talk about timeline. It can't be like a week from now or two weeks from now for your senior executive. Let's have a transition plan here. And let's kind of get to a place where the business isn't going to realize you left. And if we can get everybody to that point, it's just a lot easier to handle those situations. Yep. Yeah, I still get sad when that happens, but it's yeah. good. If they have the, if you've, if the, the best ones, it, with your help, sometimes will leave their replacement behind, right? Yeah. But sometimes you just have to help, right? Sometimes they don't, yeah. they don't see it, right? Totally. So mistake number nine, this is maybe, I'm thinking you're going back in time, but it could be today too, which is not having a process around product releases for too long. Yeah. It was willy-nilly. You didn't have story points. You fell behind. Engineering always told you it was impossible. Every release was 90 days late. Is this the kind of thread yeah, we're, we're getting into? That's, no, that's not. All of that happened to me. Um, <laughs> that's not this mistake, but yes, like engineering told you it was too hard. It was too complicated. And then at some point you just go like, oh, wow, that thing is really hard. Um, <laughs> But around, around not having a process around product releases, you know, historically, we were very good at spinning out an MVP. And then we got it out. It worked as an MVP. And then we ran off and chased the next thing. I and what, when you grow multiple up- Multiple products you didn't finish. Multiple, multiple products, you, products didn't you didn't finish. They were out in the market. And our, yeah. our sales reps were demoing them and customers were kind of using them. And so yep. building a process around when you get to maturity, you should still get MVPs out. You should just keep the resources on that project so that it can go from MVP to something much, much more mature. And, uh, and we didn't do that for far too long. And it actually feels really great when you get this right because you're releasing products that are like you know, 90 90 plus percent bug free, 99 percent bug free. They're yes. really thoughtful. They get the nuance and the edge cases. They solve a full suite of problems, and then you keep resources on them because for the next, you know, three to six months, you're taking feedback from customers and feeding it back into that new functionality or that new product, um, and that's super valuable and something we didn't do along the way. Well, it's interesting. We won't have enough time to dig deep on this, but let me ask you a follow-up question because it's, it's even more interesting to me than I think it sounds. Even when I was at Adobe, my brief time as a VP there, I saw this too because at Adobe, you have 15,000 employees, right? Yep. So there, you can build anything you want, but when it scales, you can't support it yep. because you need 10 people to launch a competitor. You, there's plenty of great engineers at Adobe, so you can launch any product you want if you give yourself even a year. Yep. There's a roadmap. You just go copy. Go copy yep. Zoom Info. Go copy anything, and 10 great engineers will do it, yep. but then you need 30 people to support it, and, and even at Adobe, you could never maintain the resource growth that if it grew, um, unless it was instantly material, right? Unless yep. it instantly did massive amounts of revenue. So, it sound, what you're saying sounds simple, but it's more nuanced, right? Because this is a multi-year commitment to something potentially. It's a multi-year commitment. And I think the other piece around this is, great, you launched a product. What does everything else look like? What's the go-to-market motion look like? What's the sales enablement motion look like? What's yeah. the pricing and packaging look like? You know, what does the product marketing look like and the battle cards look like? And, you know, what's the website page for this? And are we clearly messaging it? And so there's this whole area around product releases where historically I released a product and I got in the sales all hands and went, check this out. This is how it works. This is how you demo it. Go. And when the organization grows, it's just, you can't do it like that. Anymore. Yeah. 
All right, mistake number 10. Um, this could mean a lot of things. Not having the right account structure. Um, whatever this means, it's probably true of everybody, but what does this mean? What it is, is not having the right account everybody. structure? Um, yeah. Not having the right account structure for us meant we took customers on and then we just spread them across like account managers. And we were never really thoughtful or we were thoughtful too late about uh, how do you look at your accounts? Or do you segment enterprise and SMB? Do you treat them by you know usage together? I see, not segmenting early enough. Not segmenting and cohorting early enough. And the way that yeah. hurts you is every time you spend a little bit more time here, you go, oh, you know, we really should have done it this way. This way is a way better way. And then you go, okay, let's do it that way. And that means you're handing accounts off kind of like constantly. And so someone builds a relationship with their account manager. And then three months later, you go, oh, actually, this is your new account manager because we decided this wasn't the right way to organize the account. Um, And so being thoughtful about how you structure accounts and account load and segments is important, not just because if you get that right, it drives higher retention in your business, but also because you can you can really ruin a customer's experience with you if you're constantly shuffling accounts. Yeah, it's a good, I mean, we know that, but it's interesting, I hadn't really thought about it that way, which is when you think, when you think about how to staff as post-sales, have a mindset of how can I make sure that, that, that their account manager will, will always be the same? right? Unless something yep. happens, right? Unless there's exactly. someone quits or leaves. But ha- am I thinking about this the right way? Am I, am I 100% sure that it won't switch from, from Linda to Larry, right? And if, yep. if you're not sure, you haven't made the right investments here, right? Yep. Um, and what's your gut? I want to make sure we have a, a few minutes for our key takeaways. But when is it, I think I have a, I think I have a, a thesis, but when is, it, when is it not too early to start segmenting post-sales? Like when, when do you think it's, it's not too early? When should you, when, when do you know you're late? Uh, when do you know you're late? Uh, yeah. I think a hundred clients is when you should be really thinking about how your, po- your, your, yeah, it's statistically significant at a hundred. It's already yeah. segmented out organically at a hundred, hasn't it? Yeah. It's kind of, se- yes. It's segmented out organically at a hundred. Yeah. 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 That's a good, I was going to say five people because then you have enough to put to segment. If you yep. have one person, there's no point in segmenting, isn't it? But a hundred's the right number. A hundred's when you see the pattern, small, medium, and large, yep. verticals, whatever it is. You've got 20 here and 30 here and 50 here. And you know, 50, 30, 20, you know how to allocate your resources, right? right? Exactly. Yep. Okay, we got a bonus mistake number 11. Um, I'm sure there's bonuses 12 through 100 out there, there too, is, but yeah. under, undervaluing communication and messaging internally and externally. Yeah, we all make this mistake. But what, is this, what does this mean for, specifically? So specifically for me, this means like getting your message right on any number of things can really mean the difference between success and failure, between getting your team behind you or not. Um, yeah. and, that, and that goes from everything from like your sales deck and your pitch deck to the messaging on your website. But for me, where this, this happens most is internally where I'm trying yeah. to get the team excited about some direction I'm going in. You know, at this level, I think like the, the somewhat naive view is I get, I come in and I go, hey, do that, do that, do that. And everybody goes like, yep, we're going to go do that. And it's just like, it's way more nuanced than that. 
it's not like I just go like, I can't just go to my CTO and go like, do that. And he goes like, yep, okay, <laughs> I'm going to go do that. Like, I have to be persuasive about it. I have to tie a story around it. I have to explain why it's important to our business, why it's important to his business. And I have to get people around the idea so that everybody is convinced that this direction from a product perspective or a go-to-market perspective is the right one. And how you message any of those different directions is that it really makes the difference between like everybody being really excited to run through a wall for you and like a couple of people getting it and a couple of people being like, they'll do it. It's just like, not, it's a Henry's wrong. And so, and, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. And tactically, besides the classic all hands meeting and now the all Zoom meeting or whatever it is, it, it, this is challenging. You, you don't necessarily want to send an email every single day with, with, with product advice. What, what, what are the hacks or learnings? How do you, once you realize you need to communicate more internally, took me a while to figure that out too. I'm still learning. But what do you, what's, what's actionable? What have you done in the last two years or whatever to improve yep. things? So I, on big things, I write memos and that might feel well, that's like interesting. pretty, but yeah. I will sit down and write a memo that goes like, here's the direction I'm going. Here are the reasons why. I'll answer the, the like, and I know what the like negative pushback to things would be. And so I'm answering those in the memo. I'm laying it all out. And then I'm sure. Who do you distribute this memo to? So I distribute to VPs and above and basically senior directors and above. We have like a senior management team and then the executive team. And I share it with everybody. Yep. That's an interesting one. And are they lengthy? Or is it like, is it almost like a, a, a spec in words? Like, here's the vision. Here's how we might do it. Here's what yeah, our goals are. Yes, they're lengthy. They're like, you know, 10 to 20 pages. Oh, wow. And it also, that's actually a good, way, that's a good, that is a good tip. Every time I don't write a spec for something, it fails, right? Even okay. if it's the smallest thing in the world, but this is next level, right? This is a, you're writing a business plan almost for the initiative, right? I am. And then it also, I'll get halfway through some of those and go like, this is a bad idea. This is a bad idea. <laughs> it like, forces I, you to do the work, right? Yeah, it forces I you to do the work, right? Objection. Well, yeah. and if I can't answer that objection, well, how am I going to answer in front of my team? Well, and then I'm yeah. just, going like that idea we're going to move to the next all right because we're we're at the end or almost over depending on how you define it and thank you for all this time there's, you've got four key takeaways but there's one point related to all this let me just ask you for, for for the founders out there some of the some of the some of the things you've said the slides i feel like one reason you made some of these mistakes in terms of conservatism was being bootstrapped right yep. and when you it is Bootstrap is not always a, a lot. People on the internet act like it's a choice. Oh, I'll raise money or bootstrap. It's rarely a choice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're, you're coming out of law school. You're investing 30 grand in the business. Back in the day in 2007, maybe no one was going to give you 10 million in a seed round. It's probably, yeah. it's probably wasn't your choice. You probably didn't turn away 5 million uh, before a line of code, right? So yeah. some of the hesitation I hear here, if, if I was, I would say, don't beat yourself up too much. I hear bootstrapping scar tissue, but there's overfunded scar tissue too. Is, is that a thread in here? Totally. And it, yeah. Okay. <laughs> totally. Yeah. It's a, part of the evolution. And I right? didn't have a choice, right, Jason? Like I didn't, I didn't know what I was in Columbus, Ohio. I grew up in Los Angeles and I went to college in Las Vegas. We launched yeah. a business in Columbus, Ohio. I knew there were people who gave money to businesses, but I didn't know like how to go get those dollars. And yeah. so what I knew was I could, if you ran a business that was profitable, that felt like a business that you could continue to run for a long time. And yeah. that was the only thing I knew how to do. And so that was the choice. And yeah, along the way, because of, you know, because you have to be so precise with your investment decisions, um, 
that carries through. And at some point you got to go like, okay, I'm going to make decisions that are like objectively right for the business. Not just, and I'm not going to let my fear about, you know, execution or, um, you know, the unknown really keep me from making those decisions. Got it. So since we're at the very end, if I could beg a favor, Henry, can you read us your four key takeaways so that the 100,000 people on our podcast will hear them in your yes. voice? Because we won't be able to dig into these four points, totally. but let me just hear you as a mentor give us these four, four takeaways. So the first one is look at the decisions you're scared to make and evaluate the risk of not making them. And so yes. take like the fear of not making the decision out of it and then, and then evaluate what happens if you don't make that decision. Remove the fear from your decisions. Remove the fear from your decision. Yep. Ask yourself why you're risk averse in certain areas and whether your decisions are based on fact or fear. And on this one, often when you ask yourself why you're risk averse in a certain area, you'll get down to you know leadership issue, a product yep. issue, you don't trust execution. So get to the why of why you won't put the dollars there. Consider what trade-offs you're making. You know, are, am I investing in go-to-market at the expense of... Uh, product or engineering or something else and and take bigger bets even if they're long term and don't have an immediate payoff you know along the way we didn't invest enough in brand awareness and content creation to have a voice those were long term things that would pay off and we didn't invest in them up front and so we should you know we should have taken bigger bets along the way here awesome uh, Henry, this was amazing. This was one of my favorite sessions of all time. These are the these are the same mistakes we all make and keep making. But I think you've given us an incredible set of challenges to just make fewer of these eleven mistakes. Right? That's the trick, so. isn't it? Just yeah. just make a couple fewer, and then we'll watch how much faster you grow. That's right. All right. So this this was a ten. I'm sure everyone is is quietly applauding in cyberspace during this global sure. pandemic. Um, but I, I'm deeply appreciative for the time as as we all are. So thank you so much. Thank you, Jason. Thank you, everybody. Curious how you can grow your SaaS company while companies shift operations online? Show your customers how you can help them by changing your forms to tools with a simple personalized result page. Choose from over 1,000 templates at outgrow.co forward slash SaaS. That's outgrow.co forward slash S-A-A-S. Mm-hmm.